This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com. Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi, taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. We are in letter nine, page one fifty-four. Nine kabbalistically is the number of truth. It's a very Profound, very powerful, revolutionary letter, and a revolutionary approach to how we have to look at giving tzedakah. Completely counterintuitive, and um, there's not much commentary on this letter. It's so without the Rebbe saying here, is so powerful it doesn't need too, many, too much commentary. And like we learned till now, every letter has a unique approach. Every year there was a new message, <laughs> a new insight, a new depth in the idea of tzedakah. I don't know if there's any case in history where there were so many, every year there was a new breakthrough and a new understanding a revolutionary understanding of a whole idea of, a, of this particular mitzvah, of the mitzvah of giving tzedakah. Alter Rebbe addresses himself to the Hasidim. He says, Ahuva and my beloved ones, my brethren and friends, who are unto me like my soul. Alter Rebbe refers here to his Hasidim, my beloved ones, my brethren and my friends doesn't usually address himself that way to chassidim. It's like a teacher addressing himself to a student. My friends, a student is a student, a teacher is a teacher. Especially a rebbe is a rebbe and a chassid is a chassid. But here he addresses himself as my friends, because the whole foundation of this letter is the mitzvah of loving your fellow Jew like yourself. So there the Torah uses the expression friends. So by fulfilling this letter... Al Rebbe counts you as one of his friends. So if you want to know how to become the Al Rebbe's friend, it's by learning and internalizing and fulfilling what it says in this letter. The previous Lubavitcher Rebbe explains in one of his talks that when the Al Rebbe seeks to imbue his followers with the love of their fellow Jews, he addresses them as my beloved friends. For by befriend, befriending a fellow Jew, one becomes a beloved friend of the Altar Rebbe. Accordingly, it may be said that by heeding the Altar Rebbe's instructions with regard to tzedakah, one becomes one of the Altar Rebbe's beloved brethren. I come herewith as one who reminds and awakens those who sleep the slumber of vanities of vanities. Physical things at any time are deemed heavily being airy and insubstantial. They have no true existence when they serve no loftier purpose than themselves. 
They may be given the double epithet used above. Halei Havalim. Airy and foolish triviality. So first he says, I'm coming to awaken. There are those who just need an awakening. They're asleep. But the slightest sound wakes them up. The slightest noise wakes them up. So you just have to say something. Boo! And they're up. They don't need much. You just, they hear something, they, they're immediately inspired. There are those who are in a deep sleep. Sleep the slumber. Like almost like in a coma. They don't hear anything. <laughs> you can shake them and shake them and shake them. It's like, huh, what? So these are, this is a Jew in such a deep sleep, spiritual sleep, that awakening is not enough. They can hear and you have to storm and it doesn't reach them and they just don't respond and they go right back to sleep. And they're such a deep sleep. What is their sleep? Their sleep is, they're involved in Hevel. They're engaged in the material world. And they take the material world as reality. They're involved in making money, profit, accumulating wealth, success, power, fame, indulgence. They're involved in the material world. But when you're involved in the material world, the material world itself is like Hevel, it's like hot air, there's nothing here, there's nothing of substance. There's nothing here that's going to fulfill you. It will never fulfill you. All the wealth. Not that we know from experience, but <laughs> may we all find out that all the wealth in the world, and all the fame in the world, and all the indulgence in the world, you're able to live a thousand years and indulge in every single indulgence imaginable. It would never make you happy. It would never satisfy. So it's all heaven. It's, it's empty. It's hot air. There's nothing there. There's nothing of substance. There's nothing that will really satisfy you internally. So it's all external. It's superficial. It's skin deep. So that's heaven. Havolim is, when you add insult to injury, it's one thing when you're involved in the material world. But you know it's skin deep. And you know that it's superficial and you know it's a means to an end but when you glorify the means and the means become an end in itself there's no point there's no purpose you're not even asking the question what, what's it all about it's just a celebration of crassness Las Vegas <laughs> a celebration of coarseness it's soulless it's empty it's meaningless it's it's absurd, it's grotesque not even beautiful materialism could be beautiful but if it serves a higher purpose, it serves a higher then the materialism could be a reflection of that inner beauty but when the external becomes divorced from any meaningfulness, from any soul from any purpose it just becomes like a horror show (laughs) it becomes grotesque becomes disgusting, absurd. Hevel havolim. Vanity of vanities. Eerie and foolish. Trivialities. Trivial of trivial. When you celebrate the emptiness and you aspire to emptiness, 
that becomes impossible to bear. This is, this is foolishness of foolishness. Hevel havel. So when a person is in, not only in this world, but he's in a deep sleep, and he's totally immersed in the mud, in the vanity, in the foolishness. You know, there, there was two Hasidim, two brothers. One was, became a Hasid of the Alter Rebbe. And he, all he cared about was godliness, spirituality, developing his soul, and he became a very deep chassid. And he had to marry off his daughter, he had no money, and his brother was a very wealthy, wealthy Jew. His whole life was money. He lived money, he breathed money, he dreamed money. And he really, the two brothers really had nothing to do with each other because they had nothing in common. This was a serious, one brother was serious, a person of substance, a person that had an inner life. And he was alive, spiritually, vibrantly alive. And the other brother was moneyed, extremely all about money. But he had no choice, he had to marry off his daughter. So he had no choice, he had to go visit his brother to ask him for a loan or to help him out. So he goes to his brother his brothers start showing off. Showing off his house, his mansion that he built. Biggest house in town. And he's showing him this room and that room. And the brother couldn't take it anymore. It was too much. He said, listen. You know I am here. You want to help me? Help me. And please, let's say goodbye. And we'll, we'll drink a l'chaim together and we'll go. But I, I just can't handle it. He says, you know, there's a certain animal in the animal kingdom that not only does it roll in the mud and it eats its own mud and feces, but it actually enjoys it. It luxuriates in the mud. Of course, he was talking about the pig. He says, it's one thing you have to be engaged in the material world. Fine. Listen, you have no choice. You have to be engaged in the material world. That's your mission in life. But to enjoy it, to luxuriate in it, and you're showing off, and this is what you take pride in, and this is what you have to show for yourself, and this is what your life is all about, it's just too much. You just couldn't take it. So this is Hevel Havol. It's, it's nothingness of nothingness. It's bad enough that it's Hevel, but in addition to that, it becomes Havolim when there's no loftier purpose completely divorced, disconnected from any sense that there's something higher, there's something deeper, there's something something richer, something inner richness that matters, not the external richness. You could be a billionaire and yet you can be impoverished. You're the world's greatest pauper. And you can be physically poor and you're the richest. With internal riches. So when Hevel becomes the defining mark, that becomes the Forbes 400. It's how much money you have in your bank. You could be the lousiest human being on earth. The greatest miser, the cruelest, the meanest. You don't talk to your children. You don't talk to your spouse. Miserly, you don't give a penny to tzedakah. But that becomes a definition in society. Who is the greatest? This is Hevel Havalim. This is... This is this is when Hevel becomes divorced from anything higher. 
worried to be who, who are the richest people who are giving the most tzedakah. That's, that's a list to count. That's a list. The wealthiest people are giving the most tzedakah, billions in tzedakah. Not throwing pennies. On themselves they spend billions. On vanity and fame they spend billions. On themselves, on giving tzedakah, really making a difference, they give pennies. So this is Hevel Havolim. This is a society that's completely divorced, disconnected from anything truthful, meaningful, uplifting, or higher. This is what we call Hevel Havolim. Hakil Hevel Havolim. The wisest man, the wealthiest man, says, it's all narishkeit, it's all foolishness. All vanity. Vanity of vanity. So the Rebbe says, I'm coming to awaken those who are lost and are so caught up and distracted by the material world. I'm here to awaken them and awaken them from their deep sleep and pull them out of this, of their mud, of their crassness and coarseness. They completely forgot what life is all about. And then he continues. And to open the eyes of the blind. When the soul finds itself within the body and allows itself to be led by it, it resembles a sighted person whose eyes are, are bound, and who, intelligent though he may be, is then led about like an imbecile. If the soul, a part of Hashem above, descends within a body, but cannot restrict it from fulfilling its desires, it is considered to be blinded by the body, as the Semisodic writes in Or HaTorah, at the conclusion of Parshat Be'er, the blindness caused by the body must be healed so that the soul may once again behold the truth. So you have eyes, but you're blind. So the soul comes into this world, and the soul cannot see. He's blind. The eyes don't... Of course, the soul has the ability to see. Even the blind person, the soul has the ability to see, but the eyes just are not functioning properly and therefore don't allow the soul to see through the eyes. So too, the body doesn't allow the soul to see. So when the soul is in charge and the soul controls the body and the soul doesn't allow the body to run off and do whatever it wants, but the soul is in control and you're able to restrain yourself, then the soul is able to see. But if the soul is not in charge, and the soul is not in control, and the body runs off and does what it wants, not what the soul wants, then the soul is blind. It cannot function. It's there, potentially, but it's not function. The soul is there. When a person sleeps also, everything is there, but it's not function. But here, even when a person could be awake, the blind person, even when he's awake, he doesn't see. It's one thing when a person sleeps. Okay, so you can wake him up. But what happens even when a person is blind, even when he's awake, it doesn't help. Even when he's awake, he can't see. He's not functioning. So even if you woke him up already, it doesn't help. Even when you're listening and you woke him up, Maybe he even understands. But it's not functioning. The body is out of control. The body is a runaway train. The body is running on its own. The body is in charge, not the soul. Because the soul understands one thing. So we're talking about someone who's awake. 
And he understands. And maybe he wants to do the right thing. The bottom line is he's not in control. He's allowing the body, his own body, to take charge. To do what the body wants, not what the soul wants. So if you allow the body to do what the body wants, not what the soul wants, you're like blind. You see, you have the capacity to see, but you can't see, you're not functioning. So what does it help that you're awake? What does it help that you understand that you're learning and you're listening if you can't implement it, if you can't take charge? So the Alter Rebbe says, I'm here to help you with all these afflictions. <laughs> this letter is here to awaken you, to be your alarm clock, to awaken you out of your coma, to schlep you out of the hevel, havol, and schlep you out of the mud, and to heal your blindness. Not enough to learn and to listen, but to take it and to take charge and work with it. Take control. That the soul should prevail. The soul should be the one that's in charge and that's dominating and that runs, runs your life. Okay? You see, every word is uh, pregnant with meaning. It's not just Altarebi, it's not just poetic flourish. He's talking very real life, real issues. Awaken those who are awake to asleep, and those who are in coma, and those who are in the, uh, engaged in hevel havolim, and to open up your eyes. That you can see. Your soul, your eyes become a window to the soul. Your eyes allow your soul to function. Your soul functions, meaning your soul is in charge, your soul is in control. And control your body. Okay. What's the opening their eyes to? Let them look and see to it that all their striving, longing and aiming, in everything on which the life of their spirit depends, should be bound up in the divine source of the living waters, the fountainhead of all life, throughout all the days of their lives, with respect to the soul as well as to the flesh. Not only during prayer or Torah study or while performing mitzvot is a Jew to be bound to Hashem, but even while going about his mundane affairs, he should be attached to him as well. Like it says, David Amela says, And tell him, My tears were my bread. Day and night I was crying. When my enemies were saying to me, Kol ayayim, ayayim, a whole day they're telling me, where is your God? Are you such a believer in God? Why isn't God helping you, rescuing you, helping you? That's a simple explanation, but the, the Rebbe once interpreted what David HaMelech is saying is, what I'm crying about, and my crying is such an extent that it substitutes my bread. What I'm crying about is, the question that I'm asked is, Kol ayayim, ayayim, a whole day, where is your God? not enough to think about Hashem when you're studying Torah. Obviously you're thinking about Hashem. You're studying His Torah. You're doing something holy. You're doing something godly, something divine. It's not enough to think about Hashem when you're praying, when you're davening. Surely you're thinking about Hashem. You're talking to Hashem. You're davening to Hashem. Or when you're doing a mitzvah, you're fulfilling His commandment. You're doing an act of kindness. But the question is, in heaven they ask of me, Hashem wants to know, Kol where am I a whole day? Why aren't you thinking about me a whole day? And this is a very fundamental principle in Yiddishkeit, especially in Hasidic teaching. We talk about the unity of Hashem, Hashem Echad. Hashem Echad does not mean that there's only one God and not two gods. 
only God is in control, no one else is in control. Hashem Echad does not even mean only that Hashem is, is unique, Hashem is absolutely one. But Hashem Echad ultimately means there's only one reality. Nothing else exists besides Hashem. And therefore, a Yid has to constantly think about Hashem. It's not enough that you're thinking about Hashem when you're studying Torah and you're doing mitzvahs. And that was the whole distinction between the Hasidim and the non-Hasidim. A misnagid knew, how do you think about Hashem when you learn Torah? I'm thinking about Hashem when you're doing a mitzvah. But eating, sleeping, drinking, going about my business, what does, what does that have to do with Hashem? That's, I have to do it, L'Shem Shemayim. Of course, everything I do has to be for the sake of heaven. I have to do business. I should have money in order to be able to do a mitzvah. I have to eat. I should have strength in order I should be able to study Torah. So, of course, I'm injecting Hashem into everything that I do. The theme of my life is Hashem. I live for Torah mitzvahs. In order to be able to do Torah mitzvahs, I need all these other things. Comes along Hasidus and says, no, it's much deeper than that. Not only is the goal, my goal, and the theme of everything that I do is for the sake of Hashem. But, behold, Rochecha De'eyu, as Shlema Melo says, in Proverbs, all my paths, my paths, your paths, many paths, everything that I do, all my human paths, everything that I do, I know Hashem. I know God, I know God. It's not just a means to an end. In the eating itself, that itself becomes a way to connect with Hashem. I can connect with Hashem through the act of eating. For example, when you eat on Shabbat, Eating on Shabbat is a mitzvah. It's not like eating during the rest of the week. During the week, I'm eating, I have strength. Shabbat, the act of eating itself, becomes a mitzvah. Or it's like, I'm eating, and because I eat, I have to make a bracha. But on Shabbat, we find an interesting law. A person has to make a hundred blessings every day. So during the week, there's no problem. Between all the davenings, you have most of your blessings, and you're covered. <coughs> Shabbat, you're missing, the davening is short, the shmanesres, you're missing, out of three, three shmanesres, you're missing 12, 12 blessings, 36 blessings. So a huge chunk of blessings is missing. How are you going to make the 100? So it says you, you should constantly make blessings. Every opportunity you have, eat something, make a blessing. So <clears throat> here you find a scenario where, why am I eating in order to make a blessing? It's not, I'm making a blessing because I have to eat. I have to eat, so I have to make a blessing. No, I have to make a blessing. In order for me to make a blessing, I have to eat. It, it changes the whole, the whole thing around. Why am I eating in order to make a blessing? So Hashem is primary. It's not like Hashem is secondary. Regularly, when you say, Hashem Shemayim, the eating is primary. Hashem is secondary. Hashem is, why am I eating? Because I have the strength in order to serve Hashem. It's a means to an end. So I'm, I'm in, introducing Hashem. Hashem is also part of it. But essentially, what am I busy with? I'm busy eating. I'm hungry and I have to eat. I'm busy earning a living like every other normal human being is earning a living, spending most of his adult life earning a living. What distinguishes me from everyone else, distinguishes the Jew from everyone else, is Masechel Hashem Shemayim, whatever I do is for the sake of heaven. But there's something much deeper. What the Baal Shem Tev introduced, what Hasidus introduced, is something much deeper. Which is a direct consequence of our understanding of the unity of Hashem, of Hashem Echad, of the mitzvah of Achtus Hashem. The mitzvah of Achtus Hashem, the unity of Hashem, means not only there's only one God, 
But it means there's no other reality but God. There's no ego. There is no I. All there is is Hashem. There is nothing else. Therefore, everything that I do is God. I'm making, I'm eating in order I should make a blessing. The act of eating itself becomes, this is an altar, this is, becomes a way of serving Hashem through the act of eating. It's a whole different understanding. Profoundly different. And this is what distinguishes a Jew from a non-Jew. The Jew is plugged in, is connected to Hashem. Plugged into this idea of Achtos Hashem, the unity of Hashem. It's like we see the connection and no one else sees the connection. But we just see the connection. Not because we're smarter, we're brighter, we're more mystical, we're deeper. We're just because we're born with a Jewish soul and we just are connected. <laughs> we're born connected. So we can't help but see the godly connection and everything. That's why whatever a Jew does, whatever a Jew says, it's always on our lips and always on our tongue. What do we say? Baruch Hashem. Thank you, Hashem. How's your business? Baruch Hashem, no good. Baruch Hashem, <laughs> everything I do, Hashem is part of the picture. It's, it's so woven, interwoven into the fabric of our being that everything that I do is connected with Hashem. Not only studying Torah and doing mitzvahs. I'm going about my business. I'm talking about my health. I'm talking about mundane, ordinary things. And yet, the first word out of my mouth is Baruch Hashem. Thank God. Because we're so plugged in, we're so connected with unselfconscious, without even realizing it, Everything, of course everything is Hashem. What's business and what's health and what's... There's nothing else but Hashem. There's no other reality. So first and foremost, let's talk about Hashem. Let's talk about the main business. Then we'll get to the details. The details will follow. But the most important thing is right away, Baruch Hashem. Hashem is part of it. You're not doing anything religious. You're not doing anything mystical. You're not doing anything spiritual, anything holy. I'm eating. I'm talking about health and career and business. No, no, no. All Hashem. Baruch Hashem. And we see this in many, 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 many ways. For example, one of the Ten Commandments is the mitzvah of honoring your parents. It's the fifth of the Ten Commandments. And we know the Ten Commandments were divided into five and five. There were two tablets, five and five. The first five were the mitzvot of the man and God. And that's why in the first five it says, I am your... In every one of the commandments, Hashem's name is mentioned. The next five, Hashem's name is not mentioned at all. Don't murder and don't steal and, and, don't, and don't commit perjury and don't testify falsely. Don't be jealous. Don't commit adultery. All these things between man and man. The first five are between man and God. And that's why Hashem's name is mentioned. Which begs the question, honoring your parents. That belongs between man and man. Why is that, why is that included in the mitzvah between man and God? And yet the Torah seems to be telling us very clearly that it's a mitzvah between man and God. And there's a big difference whether it's between man and man or between man and God. Because we know Yom Kippur forgives you on all the sins the man and God. Yom Kippur does not forgive you on the sins the man and man. You can cry from today till tomorrow. God himself can't help you. You have to obtain forgiveness. So the question is, when there's a lack of honoring your parents, which category does it fall into? If it's the man and God, Yom Kippur could forgive. Even if your parents don't forgive you, Hashem forgives you. 
But if it's between man and man, it doesn't help. Parents have to forgive you. So it's an interesting question. So why is it between the mitzvah between man and God? So the Chinuch says, and Devon Ezra says, very interesting explanations that are given. One is because you have to honor your parents. Why do you have to honor your parents? Because you have to show gratitude. Look how much they've done for you. Look what they've done for you. And they raised you. And they brought you into the world. And they gave you a life. And they raised you. And all the hours that were spent. And so, yeah, out of gratitude of human being, out of gratitude, you have to be grateful for what they've done to you. You have to pay them back. You owe them. And if you show gratitude to your parents, this will teach you to also show gratitude to our parent, the parent of all of us, the parent of our parent, and our parent is Hashem, who provides everything for us. If the Torah is teaching you to show gratitude to your parents, how much more so we have to be grateful for all the blessings that we have that come from Hashem. So therefore, Hashem includes honoring your parents in the category of man and God, because this will lead you to honor Hashem. Barbanel says, because the whole tradition of Judaism comes from the parents. Tradition. We received everything that we know, we received from our parents. We heard it from their parents, we heard it from their parents. Egypt today, Exodus from Egypt, is alive for us. Who, ask anyone in the world who King Pharaoh was. What do they know King Pharaoh? What's King Pharaoh do with anyone? Ask any Jewish child. King Pharaoh, it's as if it's, as if it's a living, breathing reality today. We left Egypt. We, st- we just had a Seder. We personally left Egypt. Because this collective memory has been transmitted from parent to child without any interruption for 3,300 years. So it's as if it's happening with us today. So the whole Yiddishkeit, the whole tradition of Mount Sinai and the Exodus and Avram, Yitzhak and Yaakov, and the whole Torah was transmitted from parent to child. If there's no transmission, the whole Torah comes to an end. So it's the honoring the parents, honoring the older generation, unlike today's society which, is, which worships the youth, the Torah says you have to honor the elders because it's the elders, that's your link, that's your link to this tradition. Without the link, without honoring your ancestors and going back to the origin, to the beginning, there's no Yiddishkeit. So that's why it's the honoring the parents that supports the whole relationship between you and Hashem. But Nachmanides says something unique. That Amban writes, that the reason we, the Torah tells us to honor parents is because, for the same, because out of honoring Hashem, our way of honoring Hashem is by honoring parents. Because the parents created us. That's all he says. He doesn't talk about parents, you owe them, they raise you. Because Nachmanides is also addressing another question. Why is honoring your parents only for Jews? There's no mitzvah. It's not one of the seven Noahide laws that you have to honor your parents. Of course, it goes without saying. It's part of menschlichkeit. It's part of the general theme and the general thrust of the seven Noahide laws the, of being a moral, ethical, and spiritual person. You have to be grateful for all the good that your parents have done. You have to honor them. You have to treat them with respect. That goes without saying. But there's no mitzvah, specific, unique mitzvah, especially not the Ten Commandments, like the seven, one of the seven Noahide laws should be honor your parents. Only by Jews. It's a mitzvah. It's one of the Ten Commandments and it's included in the five that are between man and God and Hashem mentions His name in that mitzvah. Why? 
So Nachmanides holds all these reasons that the others give that because you have to you owe them, you have to be grateful. That that's true universally. But there's something unique about honoring your parents that's unique to the Jew. Something that a Jew gets, the rest of the world doesn't get. Or a Jew notices it and focuses it and senses and responds to it. And that is the miracle of creation. Only God has the ability to create. Only God has the ability to give life. All the scientists in the world can create life of a fly. Life comes from within. Existence is a miracle. How could a human being give birth to create? How could a human being create? Because you're creating something that's infinite. You're creating something that will outlive you. That's eternal. How could a finite human being give birth to something that's infinite? You can't give what you don't have. Angels don't have the ability to create. Because angels are finite. As spiritual as they are, as great as they are, as spiritual as they are, they are finite. A finite human being, a finite being, any being cannot create something infinite. It's impossible. And yet, a human being is able to create something that's infinite. This ability to create is a, is a godly event, is a divine event. So when you're honoring your parents, you're honoring them for one reason, one reason only. Because they've done something godly. If all parents did in their life is have a child, they've done the most godly thing they'll ever do in their life. They participated in the infinite. They've created something that's astonishing, that that's absolutely makes no sense. It's, it's a miracle of miracles, wonder of wonders. So to most people, having children is the most natural thing in the world. Two people fall in love, and they're together, and as a result, there's a child. No one looks at it as anything godly. Only the Jew looks at a, tri- at a parenthood and says, wow, this is godly. Because the Jew is plugged in. So the Jew sees what no one else sees. Everyone else looks at it as the most natural thing in the world. To a Jew, a Jew looks at the same reality and says, this is the most unnatural thing in the world. This is the most godly thing in the world. This is the most astonishing thing in the world. So when you're honoring your parents, what are you honoring? You're not honoring them as human beings. You're honoring their godly ability that they've done something godly. That they've partnered and participated with Hashem. Hashem allowed them, enabled them, and empowered them to give birth. That's what we find. The Torah says that God created Adam and and then He blessed them. They should have children. Because there are many people who are completely healthy, perfect specimens of health, and yet they can't have children. Because to have a child, it's, it's a mystery, it's, it's a blessing, it's a divine blessing, it's a godly blessing. The question is not, how could we not have children? The question is, how could we have children? When we have children, it's a, it's a special blessing. And we don't take it for granted. And that's why we honor our parents. Because they did something godly. They created us. They created something that's infinite. For that, I'm forever indebted to them, no matter what happens, no matter what, when, where, I am indebted to them, and I have to respect. I'm respecting them, I'm respecting Hashem. Because they did something God. And of course, that, that only applies with biological parents, not adopted parents. This special mitzvah of honoring your parents. And that's why it's only, only in the Ten Commandments, only the Jews, because again, only when you're connected, when you're plugged in with Hashem Echad, when you know Hashem with every fiber of your being and every bone in your body and Hashem is the only reality, the ultimate reality, there is no other reality, all there is is Hashem, 
suddenly you sense the godliness in the ordinary. Everything that everyone else dismisses and that no one even pays attention and seems so simple and obvious and you see the godliness. And with this we understand a very astonishing Gemara. The Gemara says in, in Tractate Shabbos in Shabbos page 31 the Gemara says it says in Isaiah the verse says Isaiah chapter 33 and the faithfulness of your times and the strength of salvations will be wisdom and knowledge and the fear of Hashem, which is man's treasure. So the Gemara tells us what is the, the scriptural source for the six parts of the Mishnah. The Mishnah is divided into six parts. The first part deals with agriculture. It's called Zeroyim, seeds, agriculture. The next part is called Mayed, which deals with the times, with Shabbat and all the holidays. And the next one is Nashim, which deals with marriage and, and relationships. And, uh, and then the next one is Nizikin, which deals with damages, laws of damages, civil law. And then comes Kachim, the laws of holiness, of the temple, of the sacrifices. And the last one, the sixth one, is Taris, which deals with the laws of purity. What's the scriptural basis of these six divisions, six parts of the Mishnah? Because it says, Vehoya Munas, the faithfulness. So faithfulness refers to Zerayim. Itecha times refers to the, the, the part that talks about times, the different times, the holy times, the holidays, Shabbat. And chayson, strength, refers to relationships, because that's the strength. Strength of our family is a strength. Our strength comes from our, our, uh, from our pure and kosher relationships. Salvation comes from laws of damage, because you save yourself from Getting in problem, getting involved in problems and lawsuits, if you know, to protect yourself, not to cause damage to others. And, and wisdom refers to holiness, the kachim, and knowledge refers to purity. So why does faith, what's the connection between faithfulness? What does faithfulness have to do with farming? With the laws of Zerayim? So Rashi says, because the laws of Zerayim rely on the integrity of the farmer, that he'll separate the appropriate tithing that he's obligated to. That's how Rashi interprets. Taisvis, however, brings the Jerusalem Talmud and says, why is farming, Zerayim, seeds, called in the, in the Pasuk, in the verse, faith? Because you believe in Hashem, Maimin Bechayel, you believe in Hashem, Vizedeya, and you, and you plant a seed. Which is very, if you think about it, it's very astonishing. You know, the Rebbe would speak about this many, many times. It's very astonishing. You would think, right? Logic would dictate. If you want to associate faith, associate faith with the holidays, that has to do with faith. God took us out of Egypt, the celebration of the holidays, the miracles, Shabbat, God created the world on the seventh day, rested. That has to do with faith. Faith with the idea of sacrifices and animals holy and the temple is holy. Holiness is not anything tangible. It's faith. Or even with the laws of purity, it's also faith. You can't take it to a laboratory. You can't see a difference in something that's pure or impure. It's all spiritual. It's taken on faith. But farming, farming and faith, farming is the most natural thing in the world. <laughs> if you wake up in the morning and you plant your seed and it grows, what does it have to do with faith? I believe in Hashem and I plan. 
I believe in Hashem and I follow the laws of sacrifice. I believe in Hashem and I don't work on Shabbat and I don't work, I keep the holidays. I believe in Hashem and I follow the laws of purity. This is pure or impure. But what does belief in Hashem have to do with farming? It's the most natural event in the world. Non-Jews who don't believe in Hashem also, also farm. <laughs> and they grow. I mean, what does that have to do with faith? Out of all the things, this is what the verse calls faith. Agriculture. Seeds. But again, here we see this, this distinguishes Jewish faith. This is where you see what Jewish faith really is. To have faith in miracles, for that you don't need Jewish faith. Obviously, if you see a miracle, you see Hashem. But real faith is when you, ha- when you associate faith with farming, with planting a seed. Because again, this is a regular event that everyone takes for granted. Who thinks twice about it? This is the most natural thing in the world. You plant a seed and something grows. Uh, what's there to think about? What does it have to do with Hashem? What does it have to do with, any- with godliness? But we just spend the whole letter, letter number eight, learning without it. explains to us what farming is. You know what planting a seed is? It's an impossible event. Think about it for three and a half seconds. The whole thing makes absolutely no sense. I plant a seed. And the seed rots. And from this tiny seed, you have this whole huge wheat stock. Okay, wheat is half a problem. But then from this tiny seed, you have this, 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 this vegetable. But that even, gets even better. From this tiny seed, you get a tree that lasts for hundreds of years. It gives off fruits. How, can, how did all of this develop from one tiny seed? And you can't even blame the seed because the seed rots. <laughs> so you don't even have a seed. It makes no sense. It's completely illogical. It's, it's only, it's a, it's a miracle. It's a divine act. That's nothing to do with us. We don't cause the tree to grow. Hashem causes the tree to grow. Because Hashem instilled in the earth His divine energy to create. Only God has the ability to create. And where did He put this ability? In the earth. And when you plant, all you're doing is you're, you're evoking, you're stirring up the divine ability within the earth to create. And by planting the seed, it will create whatever the seed was. So if you plant the tomato seed, you're not going to end up with a peach. you end up with a tomato. But the tomato itself, is no, you can't explain that the, the, that the tomato came because I planted. But here you see the beauty of what Jewish faith is, what real faith is. Why doesn't anyone think in these terms? Why doesn't anyone notice the divine and godly event that's taking place. Everyone just plants a seed and it's the most natural thing and next, you don't even think about it. You don't go to a field to, to meditate and <laughs> to feel godly. Yet a Jew looks at a seed and suddenly he sees the hand of Hashem. He sees the most impossible event, the most godly event. So a Jew's ability to find Hashem in everything, in the most mundane things, this is what Hashem Echad means. This is why we close our eyes and we say Hashem Echad, Hashem is one. We concentrate and we focus twice a day. Not just to remind ourselves there's only one God and not two gods. For that you don't need to concentrate, you don't have to close your eyes. With open eyes you know it. There's no big deal. It's obvious, it's simple, self-evident. But when you need to close your eyes, you need to concentrate twice a day to remind yourself the deepest and ultimate meaning of Hashem Echad. Hashem Echad means there's no other reality. That I can find Hashem in everything. In the most mundane things, I can find Hashem. And, that, and the same is with Shabbat. 
Shabbat itself is the ultimate example. Why only Jews celebrate Shabbat? After all, God created the world six days and the seventh day he rested. And every week it repeats itself. Six days a week he works and the seventh day he rests. So why aren't, are the Jews the only ones? And a non-Jew is not allowed to keep Shabbat. Why? Again. Because everyone in the world is disconnected. Everyone takes existence for granted. You take your eye for granted. The whole focus in life is to improve that existence. From a poor existence, or a rich existence, from a dull existence, an exciting existence. So your whole life you're busy in changing and improving it. The Jew is the only one who says, wait a minute. Why am I taking existence for granted? The difference between dull and exciting and poor and rich is nothing in comparison to the difference between non-existence and existence. So existence itself is the most exciting thing in the world is the greatest miracle. The fact that we exist is the greatest, most astonishing miracle. So one day a week, we stop creating and we stop being the movers and the shakers and, we're, 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 and we stop and we say, wait a second, for 24 hours we're just going to celebrate our existence. The miracle of existence. The miracle that we hear. And suddenly everything on Shabbos becomes a mitzvah. You take a walk on Shabbos, it's a mitzvah. Husband and wife are intimate, it's a mitzvah. You eat, it's a mitzvah. You take a, you take a nap, it's a mitzvah. Especially when the rabbi still talks. It's a mitzvah. Everything you do on Shabbat is a mitzvah. Because you don't take anything for granted. You realize, you sense Hashem in the simplest thing. Suddenly it becomes, Hashem is doing everything. A hundred trillion cells, and who are we kidding? We have anything to do with it? What habri and arrogance. We're in charge. We're in control. We're in charge of nothing. We're in control of nothing. We know even less. What, what, what scientists discovered now, Jews have known for thousands of years, that the whole known universe is, I don't know if it's 4% or 6% of the whole known universe. The rest of the universe, 94, 96%, not only we don't know it, we don't even have the tools with which to know. So this astonishing reality called existence, that everyone takes for granted. And no one stops or blinks an eye. And you can go through your whole life busy improving yourself and changing. A Jew steps back every week and says, wait a minute. You wanna, you're looking for inspiration? What you, look in the mirror. Look at the world around. This is the most inspiring thing. Hashem is creating the world. This is an astonishing miracle. From non-being to being, from non-existence to existence. This is the most godly thing in the world. Existence itself, that we exist, is the most incredible, most godly thing in the world. So it's a regular day. Shabbos is a day. It's one of the days of the week. It's not like the eighth day. There is no eighth day. It's seven days. But it's the center of the week. It's the soul of the week. It's the holy day. So again, it's like, it's like, like everyone else stops here and the Jew just continues. And we just see. And we just connect. And we just sense. And therefore, everything we do is different. Our eating is different. Our relationships are different. Everything about us is different. Not just our learning is different. Of course, it's different between a Jew and a non-Jew. We learn Torah and they don't. We, st- we do mitzvahs and they don't. It's much deeper than that. Everything is different. The body of a Jew is different. The physical is different. The way we engage in the world 24-7, everything about us is different. 
That's the ultimate meaning of Hashem Echad. You can distinguish a Jew, you can distinguish a Jew in everything that he does. He's doing it differently. It's, it's Jewishly. It's godly. Not just that God is my purpose and the goal. I can sense godliness in everything that he does. And therefore, this is what, based on this, the Alter Rebbe is now going to come, it's going to revolutionize our whole perspective and how we're supposed to look at the one area in our life which engages most of our life which is earning a living support your family it seems like the most natural thing in the world you gotta work to live to survive in this world you gotta work you have to act responsibly and you have to pay your bills and time and to be able to afford and to be able to pay for everything and to lead a kosher lifestyle is not cheap so you gotta pay and you gotta work hard and you have family to feed and you have to take care of your family and that seems a very rational very responsible basis for everything that I do and that's what motivates most people in the world that have families want to take care of their families and take care of their children and it seems the most natural thing in the world problem is, what does it have to do with godliness? It's all very nice. But that's natural. That's ego motivation. What does it have to do with Hashem? So the al is going to teach us that just like everything that a Jew does is godly by nature, so too, earning a living, taking care of your family, also has to be godly by nature. Okay, let's read inside. I'll leave you in suspense of how, how he explains how we're supposed to, uh, what we're supposed to have in mind, <laughs> what our intentions are. So he just said that not only during Torah study or performing a mitzvah as a Jew connected with Hashem, but even when you're going about your mundane affairs, you also be attached to Him as well. In all mundane matters and in the means by which one earns one's livelihood, one should not be like those who do everything for their own sake acting only out of their desire to satisfy themselves and their families, rather than for Hashem's sake. Let not the house of Israel be like all the Gentiles, who feed, provide for, and esteem their wives and children out of self-love. I.e., since one loves himself, he also loves his wife and children, who are part of him. Rather, his love should be holy in its selflessness. Now, let's, let's remember, this is not a put-down to the seven billion people who are not Jewish. These, would, these are paragons of virtue. person who acts responsibly, this is a, an employer's dream to have a parent who's working hard, who's conscientious, who's not flighty, who's not here today, running away tomorrow. He knows that this worker is dependable, reliable, because his motivation is he wants to take care of his family and he has responsibility and he wants to take care of his wife and his children. So this is a dream worker. A dream employee. This is a paragon of virtue. There's nothing wrong. This is natural. This is normal. This is a healthy ego. It's motivated by a healthy sense of self and a healthy sense of responsibility. And part of myself is my extended self. I want to take care of my family. I'm the provider and I have to have responsibility to take care. And that's why I spend most of my life working and working honestly and hard in order to take care of my family, to raise them in comfort and to educate them. So this is wonderful. We're talking about righteous Gentiles. We're talking about people who follow the seven Noahide laws. 
But for a Jew, he says, God forbid. This doesn't work for us. Because we have a godly soul that's motivated by selflessness and godliness. It's not ego-centered, it's God-centered. Everything is about Hashem. Including, especially, the one area in my life that occupies most of my time and most of my life, which is taking care of my family. Six days a week you work. Most of the hours of the waking hours. Most of the people's life, except when they're youth and except when they retire, most of your life is engaged and involved in taking care of your family and raising them and taking care of them and providing for them. That's the man's responsibility. So, Al-Tarebi is saying there has to be a godly, a godly intent, a selfless intent, a godly intent. What is written, who is like the people of Israel, a unique nation on earth? This means that even in mundane earthly matters, they will not have to offend, separate them from Hashem's true unity. The concept of the unity of Hashem signifies that apart from Him, nothing truly exists. So that's what the verse means, that the Jewish people are unique. Where do you see the Jewish people are unique? In this world. The fact, when they're involved in spiritual things, you don't know that they're unique. Anyone could be involved in spiritual things. But what's unique about the Jew is that even when he's in this world, engaged in mundane things and worldly things, there he stands out. There he distinguishes himself. He's unique. That his motivation is different than everyone else's motivation. He's not motivated by nature, by self, by ego. But his motivation is, there's a godly motivation. It's God-centered. Hashem, goi echad. They're one. They follow the one Hashem. Their belief of the one Hashem, that there's no other reality but Hashem. Where do you see that clearly? You see that how they engage in the material world. Like in Shabbat day becomes a holy day. Honoring your parents. As in the farmer who sees Hashem in the, the act of planting a seed, is an act of faith and sees Hashem. This is where you see what Jewish faith is, what the Jewish people are all about. And this explains an unbelievable story. It was uh, the Baal Shem Tev who introduced this whole revolution to the Jewish people. And the whole Tanya is here, because the Tanya is to publicize the fountains of the Bashemtev, the teachings of the Bashemtev. Mashiach told the Bashemtev one thing and one thing only. When your wellsprings will be spread throughout the world, Mashiach will come. He didn't say anything else. He says, when Hasidus will spread throughout the world, that's the only thing he said. That's going to bring Mashiach. Mashiach himself told that to the Bashemtev. And that's why the Alter Rebbe sacrificed him his life to write the Tanya. Because this is the wellspring of the Baal Shem Tev. This is the teaching, the fountain of the Baal Shem Tev. When every Jew in the world will study Tanya, then Mashiach will come. So the Baal Shem Tev himself would go around, he would travel all over Europe, Eastern Europe. He would stop simple Jews in the streets and say, how are you doing? He would say, thank God. How is your wife? And how are your children? How is your living? And because the Baal Shem Tev wanted them, he wanted to hear from them. He loved when they said, thank Hashem, Baruch Hashem, thank God. One day he comes to this town. In this town there was this elderly Jew. He was in seclusion for 50 years. He sat all day and night and learned Torah. 
he never lifted up his eyes, never looked around. People would bring him foods, he would eat, sleep a few hours, like an ascetic, and all day, all he cared about, didn't care about food, didn't care about the world, no connection with anyone, no relationship with anyone. He was totally immersed in studying Torah day and night. Baal was incognito, so he was dressed like a simple Jew. So he sits across this elderly scholar, and he says, how are you? How's your living? How's your livelihood? How are your children? And the, uh, this parish, this uh, recluse was, don't bother me. Look at the Baal a simple peasant. What, what do you, what do you what I want for my life? I used to ignore him. And Bashamta kept on asking him. And after a few times, he waved with his hands, like, out of here, what do you want? Why are you disturbing me? So the Bashamta t- t- looked at him and says, You want to deprive God from his living, from his parnasser, from his livelihood? Here's a, a simple person talking about God's li- livelihood, depriving God of his livelihood. He was very, <laughs> he was very intrigued. He says, Well, what do you mean? What are you talking about? He says, He says, This is a Bashamta, it's a Pasuk. It's a it's an open verse. It says, At, it says in Psalm, Kodesh, you Hashem are holy. Yoshev. Yoshev means, in Yiddish it translates to sit. To sit means, how do you make a living? How do you, where does Hashem live off from? What does He make His living from? Tehillah Yisrael, from the praise of Jews. When Jews say, Baruch Hashem, thank Hashem, Hashem, this is His Parnassah, this is what makes Him holy, this is His Parnassah, this is what Hashem feeds off. This is what nourishes and nurtures Hashem. Now, the, the Jew was busy learning. Why did Hashem take him away from his learning? He's immersed in learning, he's steeped in learning, he's very successful in his learning. Every minute, he doesn't waste a moment. Why is Hashem talking to him and wanting to say, why is it so important to get this, this recluse to talk about Hashem and thank Hashem for his health and thank Hashem for his living and for his pandas? Because this, in a sense, this is the whole purpose of the Jewish people. This is the whole reason why... I, why the neshama came down to this world. It's not enough to connect with Hashem through studying Torah and doing mitzvot. This is not what this, this is not what expresses Jewish faith. This is not what expresses Hashem Echad. This is not what distinguishes the Jew from the non-Jew. Of course, he involved in spirituality is spiritual. That's not what distinguishes the Jew from the non-Jew. Where do you see the expression of Jewish faith, the demonstration of Jewish faith? How do you bring Hashem into this world when a Jew is engaged in material things and yet? It's permeated with a sense of Baruch Hashem, everything is Hashem. When you're talking about your health and you're thinking about your Parnassah, and yet it's all about Baruch Hashem, thank Hashem. So if this Jew was completely divorced from the material world, and his whole life was Torah and mitzvot, he had zero connection to the material world, he is depriving Hashem of his, of what, of his nourishment, of his Parnassah. The whole reason why Hashem created this world, the whole reason why Hashem gave us the Torah, and the Torah was given to the Jewish people, the whole re- where did the Jewish people distinguish themselves? and express their holiness, and bring out Hashem's holiness into this world, it's when they're engaged in the material world, and and yet they're doing it for a whole different motivation, a whole different sense. They're involved in the world, and yet it's a different reality for the Jew. For everyone else it's one reality, for the Jew it's a whole different reality. It's not selfish, self-centered, ego, nature, even a good nature, healthy ego, it's about Hashem. 
So bringing Hashem into the arts, into the arts, bringing the unity of Hashem. This is where you see how Mik Amchak Yisrael, who was like the Jewish people, this is where the Jewish people distinguish themselves. There are false witness having profane while reciting the Shema every evening and morning with closed eyes. Interesting, he says, talks about the idea of closed eyes. We don't just say the Shema. Closing your eyes meaning, means you're concentrating on what you're saying. You know, when you're thinking about something very deep, you have to close your eyes. When you think about something superficial, you can keep your eyes open. But when, you, when you're trying to go deep down inside, you can't. You can't. You have to go deep inside of yourself. When you have to go deep, deep, deep inside of yourself, you have to close your eyes. We, all, we all know from our own personal experience, when you're trying to tap into it, to feel it, to sense something that eludes words, not easily captured words, you can't keep your eyes open and just talk regularly. Suddenly, you're silent and you have to close your eyes and you go deep inside of yourself to capture that feeling, that sense, that experience, that something very subtle, very profound. So when you say the Shema with closed eyes, we're talking about something very subtle, very profound, very deep. It's not just God is one. There is no other God. For that, you have to close your eyes. You can say it with your eyes wide open. <laughs> There's not the power of God. No one else is in charge. No one else is in control. You can say it with your eyes wide open. Even that God is absolute unity. Maimonides describes that. You can also say it with your eyes open. But to say that there is no other reality but God. There is no ego. All there is is Hashem. There is nothing else, including myself. <laughs> I don't either exist. All there is is Hashem. That, that you have to close your eyes. <laughs> to truly sense that, to truly feel that, and get in touch with that and experience that, that you have to close your eyes and go deep down inside of yourself. He says, God forbid you should te- be testifying falsely. He's saying Hashem Echad with closed eyes. Saying Hashem is one in the four directions and in the heavens above and on earth below, thus attesting to Hashem's unity, even in the mundane realm, while as the eyes of the blind are open. And here the Alpha addresses those whose eyes are blinded by, by corporeal matters. Can you close your eyes upon him as if he is no more, heaven forbid? This means to say that immediately upon opening his eyes after reciting the Shema, such a person can view the world as if it were a self-sufficient entity, separating the from its creator. Accordingly, moreover, he conducts his affairs in a selfish manner rather than for the sake of heaven. So, it, it's almost a mockery. You're testifying falsely in front of Hashem. You're closing your eyes, you're saying Shema Yisrael. You're not just saying it. You're closing your eyes. You're taking an action. You're closing your eyes. You're going deep inside of yourself. You're trying to get in touch with the reality. There is no other reality but Hashem, Hashem Echad. Not only is God one in heaven, in the earth, in every, every area, there's no corner of reality. There's no facet of existence. There's, there's nothing that's outside of Hashem. There is no other reality but Hashem. Nothing else exists. There's no other reality. There's no ego. There's no I. There's nothing. All there is is Hashem. And then open your eyes and poof. Well, you see the world and suddenly it's all forgotten. As if it never was. So the Alter Rebbe is saying here, you know, we already learned this in the first part of the Tanya, that Amunah, the word Amunah, faith, 
comes from the word to train. Amuna is something you have to work on. It's not something that's natural, instinctive. It's something you really have to work on. Of course, for the soul, it's natural and instinctive. But for us consciously to really internalize it, you have to really work on it. And every day you have to work on it. And twice a day. It's like I ate yesterday in a full meal. But today I'm hungry again. It doesn't help me. But yeah, I ate yesterday and I have the bill to show it. It doesn't help me. It's a new day. So there's no such thing. I'm an observant Jew. I grew up observant all my life. So that's it. I'm, I'm set for life. You're not set for anything. <laughs> Maybe you have a chance. Fighting chance. But you have to, every day, you have to train. You have to work on it. You have to close your eyes again. You have to reconnect with it, re-experience it, moved by it, inspired by it, take it to heart. Every day it's a whole new work, it's a whole new service. And Muna, you have to constantly train. People in the army are constantly training. You can't, you can't slack off. In the middle of life, you have to... Amuna, faith in Hashem, it's very easy to say have faith. But to really believe is a whole different story. Because it all depends what belief is. What are you believing in? You ask the regular Yeshiva Bachar, I believe there's a God. Okay, of course, there's nothing to work on. Of course we all know there's a God. It's the end of story. That's not belief. To believe that there's no other reality but a God. Hashem Echad. That there's, God is an absolute reality. There's nothing else exists besides Hashem. There is no ego. Even I don't think there is. There's no I. All there is is Hashem. Heaven and an earth. All four corners of the world. Every facet of existence in the world of finance, in the world of business, in the world of money, in the world of every aspect of life, all there is is Hashem. That's not something that you just say with your eyes open. And next, this is something you have to work on. You have to concentrate. And even though you concentrated yesterday, it's not enough. You have to concentrate again. It's so counterintuitive. It's so difficult for us to really grasp that and to really appreciate it and to really be inspired by it and to connect with it and especially live accordingly you, of course you have to you have to close your eyes and you have to concentrate you know, there's a famous story of Levitzik Barditchev um, don't forget the first generation of Hasidim they um, they were rebels because their parents were not Hasidim they were the first generation the second generation of the Yisrael, but Dutchev did not grow up as a chassid. But once he discovered chassidus, that's it, they captured his soul. He was a brilliant, one of the most brilliant rabbis in Eastern Europe. Alter Rebbe used to learn with him one-on-one, chavrusa, because they were in the same caliber. And um, he, when he got married, or... I think he meets he meets his uh, I forgot maybe it was his father-in-law his father-in-law asked him why what happened why why did you uh, why did you uh, become a chassid you know it was, he couldn't take all of his shtick all of his uh, behavior because Rabbi Levitzik was a fiery chassid was uh, he would 
dance in ecstasy, and he would, he was like, you know, he would do things that seemed very odd to normal people. So, the, um, and the father-in-law knew that he's a brilliant genius, and he couldn't understand what, what happened, why, he asked him, why, what did you learn in rich? Why did you go to the Magid? Why, why, why did you become a chassid? So, the Yusuf said, I became a chassid because, um, in Mizrich, I learned that there's a God in this world. Really? For that, you have to go to Mizrich? <laughs> he calls Sarka, Sarla, the maid in the house. He says, Sarka, come out of the kitchen. He says, is there a God in this world? Says, of course. He says, you see, even Sarka, the maid, knows there's a God in this world. So he just smiled and he says, he says, she says it, but I know it. Big, big difference. To say it, what does it mean? It means nothing. There's a God. So what? What difference does it make? There's a God in his eye. God is busy with his thing and I'm busy with my thing. And by the way, that can mean also I'm busy with good things. I'm busy learning. I'm busy doing good things. But God is here and I'm here. And what's, So what? What's there to say? There's nothing much to discuss. There's a God and that's it. End of story. No, no. It's one thing to say it, but to know that there's a God. To know with every fiber of your being and every bone in your body that God is real. And if God is real, then I should be jumping out of my skin. If God is real, then everything that I do is godly. Everything about me is godly. Not only when I'm doing something godly. Everything that I do, there is nothing else but Hashem. So everything that I do is godly. The act of eating is godly. Everything that I do is godly. And I see godliness in everything. So this is all a build-up. And we'll save it to next week. Dr. Rebbe is going to explain. So what is the godly intent? What is the uniquely Jewish intent? In the one activity which engages most of our lives, which is taking care of my family, taking my responsibilities, making a living, and taking care of my family. What should be the godly intention? It seems to be the most natural thing in the world. All moral, ethical, responsible human beings, all seven billion, this is what they're engaged in. Make a living, take care of your family, take care of your loved ones. What's, what's the godly intent that distinguishes the Jew from the rest of the world? Be con- to, be to be continued. To be continued. Why not? A little suspense. <laughs> this class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.